are listening to a sermon from the pulpit of Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. Well, let us turn this evening in our Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5, we're inching our way oh so closely to the end of this book. We have just a handful of sermons remaining. You'll remember this is Peter's letter to what he called elect exiles, to Christians who are aliens and and strangers in this world, to comfort them, encourage them, and say, how do you practically live in this world? I've loved this book, and as we do come to the end, he has been exhorting uh, the elders to be faithful shepherds, and now he turns his attention to the church at large, providing particular instructions, general instructions for our lives, and tonight we look specifically at humility, as Peter calls us to humility as Christ's body. So let us read 1 Peter chapter 5. Verses 5 through 7. Hear now the word of the Lord. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. If I asked you, what is humility? How would you define it? It's one of these terms that is quite difficult to put your finger on. So you kind of know it when you see it, but it's hard to define. I think in our world today, it's universally taught as a virtue. Humility is a good thing we see, But I think in practice, there's another story that's told. Humility is not often that which is praised in our world. There's not much humility that's on display around us. I think our world in practice reflects the culture of the first century. Because in the first century, humility was a negative term. You didn't want to be called humble because it meant you were lowly, you were insignificant. And so in the time when when Peter was writing this, This word humility was a bad word. You didn't want to be called humble. But yet he's turning this word on its head and saying, no, this is a good thing. Saying something that is is crazy in the eyes of the world is what should define you as Christians. And as we think about humility, we know that humility, true humility, is impossible to fabricate. Because humility is is more than just external actions. It's not behavioral modification that leads to humility. Humility arises from a humble heart. Humility is a heart issue. And I think this is where we can uh, do well by looking to John Calvin as he tells us what humility is. There's two parts of Calvin's definition of humility. He says, the humble people are those who being emptied of every confidence in their own power, wisdom, and righteousness, seek every good from God alone. So there's two parts. First is this internal inadequacy of of being emptied of every confidence in our own power, 
or wisdom or righteousness, saying, I have nothing internally to offer. And the second part is a Godward contentment. Because Calvin says, this humility is seeking every good from God alone. Contentment in God, knowing God is the giver of every good gift. So these two parts of humility, this internal inadequacy and the Godward contentment, I think will help guide us as we think about humility and what it looks like in practice. Well, the gospel of grace for sinners in Christ, it creates humble Christians. It is the gospel of grace for sinners in Jesus Christ that creates humble Christians. And we'll look at two things tonight. First, the practice of humility. And then second, the ground of humility. So first, the practice of humility. And Peter really shows three different contexts in which we are called to be humble in these uh, few verses that we've looked at. The first one is this, humility towards church leaders. He just talked talked about the elders. And then in verse five, he says, likewise, you who are younger, be subject to to the elders. Now, he doesn't use the word humility here, but it's clear in context. He's talking about humility. He goes on to, to exhort us to humility. And so I think what, this is a part of that, that package, thinking about humility. And so those who are younger are to be subject to the elders. Now, the question is, who is this, those who are younger? And some would say this is a reference to young men, because young men generally have a problem with authority. And so he's particularly calling out young men. I'm not sure that's the best way to understand this. I think in the way that The term elder originally means somebody who's older in age, but has come to mean a particular office in the church. He's reverting to these uh, these words about age to refer to all of those who are not elders in the church. So by speaking to the younger, he's simply saying to all of you who are not elders in the church, you are to be subject to the elders. And so I think what he's saying here is that there should be no contemptuous attitudes toward church leaders, to have humility towards your leaders. Now, of course, as we talked about last time, that doesn't mean everything the leaders do is right. That doesn't mean there aren't ways to flag potential problems and to raise concerns. That's absolutely part of this, but to do it in a spirit of humility, not contemptuous, being subject to them. So that's the first context here, is context of church leaders. The second context of practicing our humility is in general church life. He says in verse 5, clothe yourself, all of you, with humility toward one another. We're to have mutual humility toward one another. We're supposed to be servants of one another, seeing others as more important than ourselves. That's what Paul says in Philippians 2.3. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. This is the call to humility in the church, to treat others with more significance than yourself, to give them the dignity that is their due. It is a grace-based, pride-free community that is built off of this humble foundation. It's a glorious thing that comes, arises out of the soil of a humble flock of Christ. So the second uh, area, the second context where Peter addresses humility is in the church in general. And then third, he speaks of humility before God. He says in verse 6, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. And one of the practical outworkings of this humility toward God, he goes on in verse 7, to say that this humility involves the casting of your anxieties on him because he cares for you. 
This is fascinating because our humility before God leads us to cast our anxieties upon him, or cast our cares upon him, to not hang on to them, but to acknowledge he is greater and he is the only one that controls tomorrow. So I can cast my anxieties, my burdens upon him because he cares for us. We'll say more about this, this humility in general. But these are the three contexts, the context of our church officers, context of the church at large, and the context of God himself. We are called to be humble people. I think it's important for us to pause and to ask ourselves if in these contexts and in every context of our lives, if you exude a true humility in these situations, do you? Honestly assess, honestly think about your life. Am I truly humble toward my fellow Christian? Or we expand that. Am I truly humble toward my neighbor? Or are those that, do I look down on some? Do I think I'm more significant than others? Where does my pride rear its ugly head? It's worth evaluating and considering. It's imperative that we do this. But it's impossible for us to change simply by willing it, especially humility, because humility is not, again, as we said, not simple behavioral modification. So we must get down to the ground level. We must get down to the basis. Where does humility come from? So let's look second now to the ground of humility. The ground of humility. And Peter notes several for us here. Several reasons we're humble. Several reasons we ought to pursue humility, but ultimately several several reasons that lead to us seeing it's a renewed heart that leads to a humble life. We see first in verse 5, Peter quotes Proverbs 3, verse 34. Peter says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So one reason we are called to be humble is because God commands it. God says you are to be humble. Actually says when you are prideful, it is you are setting yourself in opposition to God. Anytime you see pride flaring in your heart or in your life, what you're doing, you are now putting yourself in opposition to God himself. Because Proverbs says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. But on the other hand, we receive God's blessing when we are humble. When we come to God in humility, when we treat others with humility. Now, I don't think this grace here that he speaks of is speaking of salvation. It's not that we uh, are humble to earn our salvation, but I think by the word grace, he's speaking of the sense of God's blessings, the sense of the nearness of God. And it is absolutely true as we walk in step with the law of God, we sense the nearness of God more and more. And that's what the proverb is telling us. That's what Peter is reminding us. All scripture is calling us not to pride, but to humility. So this is one ground, one reason we, we ought to be humble people. The second, uh, the, the second ground here comes in verse 6, where Peter speaks of the mighty hand of God. So here we're looking now at the mighty hand of God. Our, our gaze is now upward on the sovereign, eternal God of the universe. And particularly in view, we see his power. We see his awesome ability to bring judgment and then our relationship to him, we see our significance, insignificance, in light of his great power. So the mighty hand of God, the one who, who oversees everything that comes to pass, the one who is sovereign over night and day, over every square inch of the universe, 
He is the one that we are called to be subservient to. And we think of the psalmist who says, what is man? In light of all this great creation and the God who's greater than creation still, what is man that you're mindful of him? That is the humility that that Peter's painting a picture of here. In light of this awesome, sovereign, eternal God, we are nothing. It leads us to see our insignificance and to be humble. Now, the third ground is later in verse 6. And Peter calls us there to humble yourselves so that at the proper time, God may exalt you. This is one of the reasons he says to, to be humble is so that God will exalt you. This is interesting. And again, might sound like at first blush, he's speaking of a a works righteousness kind of a thing where if you're humble, then you'll earn salvation or then you'll earn some greater reward in salvation. I don't think that's what Peter's saying here. I think he's actually calling to mind the teaching of Jesus over and over and over. We see, we read it in Luke 18. It happens elsewhere in Luke. It happens in Matthew. It seems to be something that recurred in Christ's teaching where he would say, the one who humbles himself will be exalted. And I think Peter's simply reflecting that teacher, this, teach, this teaching of Jesus, that the one who humbles himself will be exalted. And, and Peter uh, rephrases it a little bit by saying, those who are humble at the proper time, God will exalt them. And by quoting from Jesus, he's bringing back in mind this whole parable of the tax collector, the whole parable of the Pharisee, The Pharisee who says, oh, Lord, look how wonderful I am. I know I've got blessings coming my way. I'm not like these other people. I'm not like this poor, pitiful tax collector who won't even look to heaven because he is so overwhelmed with his sin. He is so overwhelmed with the glory of God and his unworthiness. He won't even look to heaven and all he can say is have mercy upon me, a sinner. This is the kind of humility that Peter draws our attention to as he quotes from the teaching of Jesus. We are to see the tax collector as the one who exhibits true humility, the one who will be exalted. And I love how how Peter says uh, more precisely, there is a proper time where this exaltation is coming. It's not that you you humble yourself and then immediately there's some some, uh, exaltation that comes. He keeps over and over uh, almost, almost section by section through this book, showing us the return of Christ is our hope. We're waiting for Christ's return, that we will be glorified. We're waiting for his glory to be revealed on the last day. We're waiting for the return of Christ, and that's what he's speaking of here. At the proper time, you will be exalted. When Christ returns, there will be something glorious that happens. This exaltation is our, our, our standing in heaven before the Almighty God as brothers and sisters of Jesus Christ himself. There's nothing more exalted for a human being than that. Of course, we don't pursue humility for our own gain, but what we get to do for eternity is sing praises to God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And that drives us to humility the glory of God and not our own. This, in this simple phrase, at the proper time God may exalt you, in this simple phrase is is loaded so much meaning and is one of those grounds for, to compel us, to drive us to humility. And then the last one that Peter brings up here in this passage is in verse seven. God cares for you. 
God cares for you. This is an astounding statement. And this statement itself is worth weeks and weeks of unpacking and sermon after sermon. Because this is the God of the universe who Peter is making incredibly personal, saying he cares for you. And if that doesn't humble you, knowing his power, our insignificance, I don't know what will. Because the God of the universe cares for his people. What a glorious truth this is. This leads us to trust him. This leads us to bow down before him. This leads us to be like that tax collector that says, Lord, have mercy upon me. I have nothing to bring you. I need to rest in your care. Do you really believe this, that God cares for you? Do you really believe this? Or do you believe that you are fending for yourself in this world? You're left all alone and you're, it's up to you to get to the finish line. Or do you believe that God and his eternal love cares for your every need and concern? One of the sweetest, sweetest truths is justification by faith alone, and we talk about it all the time. But I think second to that, this is the second sweetest truth in all of Scripture. And not only are we justified, we stand righteous before God, but he, in an ongoing way for the rest of eternity, cares for us. We remain under the eternal protection of the sovereign God who cares for us. This leads us to a humble submission, a love for him, knowing his ways are far above ours and we can trust him. So I think putting all of these grounds together, that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble, the mighty hand of God, knowing that at the proper time we will be exalted and knowing that God cares for us. I think I can't do any better than the image of the tax collector that Jesus paints for us to show us how all this comes together in the picture of a, of, a, of a real human in time and space and history. What humility works itself at, out as is this cry to God, have mercy upon me, a sinner. Because it begins with our smallness before God. We are but dust. We are but sinners. We have nothing to offer him. And knowing the grace of God and Jesus, we can make that plea, have mercy upon me. We can make that request, oh Lord, save me from my sin and misery. And it results in this great profession of faith, this cry of the tax collector, have mercy upon me, a sinner. I think Peter is showing us through these various facets that it is the gospel that overcomes human pride and leads to humility. Any other humility is a false humility. Think about it this way with me for a minute. I think all of us, we all have internal, uh, an internal marketing department and a PR firm. Some people might say we all have internal attorneys, but I don't want to disparage attorneys in the practice of law, so I won't say that. We all have internal marketing departments and PR firms. And think about this. Think about your marketing department. It's always on the lookout in incredibly subtle ways to find every opportunity to show why this product is better than every other product out there. It's finding every little moment to say, this one's better than that one. To, spot, to shine the spotlight, say, oh, look at this. This is wonderful. 
to boost my brand, to demonstrate my worth, to prove that I am likable and, and worth your attention and praise. And it begins with mental comparisons, right? We begin looking down upon others, say, oh, I'm better than them. Oh, I've, you know, poor, poor so-and-so. If they were more like me. We begin, it begins with mental comparison, but maybe it leads to mundane conversations where you hear a story and you, you feel the urge, oh, oh, I've got a better one. I'm going to show, show off my better story to bring the attention back onto me. I'm going to one-up these others, or, or I'm going to name drop and show them the kind of great people I know, people I've rubbed shoulders with. Maybe I'll exaggerate my accomplishments to appear better in other people's eyes. Just a little word, just a little adjective. I'm going to drop in there. It's our marketing firm. Hard at work, this self-centered, look-at-me approach. Think of social media, where we are programmed to desire likes, to desire people to click that little thumbs-up button. And the science shows we actually have, 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 have chemical reactions in our brains when that happens. And we desire more and more. We crave more and more. And our marketing firm is hard at work to say, how many people can I get to like me? Our pride is swelling, it's growing, it's showing how our brand is good, it's, it's working 24-7, seeking to promote us and to prove we are better. I have a marketing department, I don't know about you, I suspect we all do, in, in incredibly subtle ways. But then we also have a PR firm. And the PR firm, when, when things start to go south or when maybe somebody raises a question about you, when we sense rough waters ahead to avoid a crisis, well, we call in the PR firm. PR firm comes in and helps justify our sin, helps shift the blame to others, or compares ourselves to others. They're not as bad as that person. Look what they did. Minimize what we did. Or maybe this PR firm, they're really masterful at making apologies to get the attention off of myself instead of actually owning and repenting of my own sin. This is just about every single public apology I've ever heard. We have built-in PR firms protecting us, raising defenses to keep us from criticism, to, to show that we are better than everyone else. But it is the gospel that melts this kind of pride, this marketing department PR firm pride. Jack Miller was a pastor, I believe, in the OPC and maybe the PCA as well. And he had a famous phrase. He said this, Cheer up. You're a lot worse off than you think you are. You're a lot worse off than you think you are. Cheer up. What he's getting at is our sin. We, we like to think our sin is very surface level. We refuse to go to the depths of our sin. But that's not the whole phrase. It goes on. But in Jesus, you're far more loved than you could have ever imagined. Cheer up. You're a lot worse off than you think you are, but in Jesus, you're far more loved than you could have ever imagined. And in light of this truth of the gospel, our sin and Christ's salvation, we can fire our entire marketing department and PR firm. We don't need them any longer. We don't need to set up our defenses. We don't need to prove our self-worth. We don't need to show everybody how great and wonderful I am. Because you know what? I am just a sinner in need of grace. That's all I am. And I look to my Savior, Jesus Christ, for everything good that I have. We can know that in our great state of sin, we are loved by God and Christ. 
And we can be like that tax collector who says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. This is humility, and the gospel allows humility to to flourish in our hearts. But we still have to, over and over, as Peter exhorts us to, we have to pluck out the roots of pride. The gospel kills the root of pride, but it keeps showing up in in our fallen, in our sinful hearts. So in an ongoing way, we come back to Christ. We come back to the gospel. We come back to be rooted in these truths and realities. Firing our marketing department and PR firm that keeps trying to come back to work. There is great freedom in this gospel-rooted humility. There is wonderful freedom. Peter's not giving us these commands to put us in bondage. He's giving us these commands to set us free in Christ. We are freed from proving ourselves, and now we can serve others. We're no longer here to protect ourselves. We can love And fundamentally, we understand our position before God and before all of humanity. We are but sinners, saved by a glorious Savior. So come to this God, this God who offers himself to us all in his Son, Jesus Christ. Because here we know humility, and here we have true freedom. Let us look to him in prayer. Our great Father, we are thankful for the gospel that allows us, that compels us to acknowledge our sin, that we would see the glory of Jesus. Yes, we do cheer up, Lord, knowing we are a lot worse off than we think we are, but in Jesus we know we are far more loved than we could ever imagine. Oh, Lord, root these truths deep in our hearts, that we would never again be a prideful, arrogant people, but we would be humble in serving our God and loving our neighbors. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.